Some of the content may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Today's version of El Politico is recorded at uh, midday on Thursday, the 3rd of March, 2022. Terms and conditions may have changed before this episode is broadcast, and if it isn't broadcast, World War III has happened. So, in the meantime, Tom, take it away. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a very fluid situation we find ourselves in uh, this morning on El Politico. I don't know if I've ever felt sorry for Boris, and I kind of felt a little bit sorry for him in a, how would you say a news conference over in Poland. But we'll get to that. But I think it wouldn't be uh, a bad thing to start with Boris today and maybe go backwards to go forwards. How do you think? I think we could do that, Paul. Sounds what like do you plan. think? Sounds like a plan. Sounds yeah. like a plan. Okay, right, lads. If you throw on a set of headphones there, and uh, you can have a listen to backwards going forward. This is actually uh, an op-ed piece that was done by a British comedian, Paul. I think you're aware of it, but it was an op an op-ed piece that was done for the New York Times, right? So this is, you know, sometimes we start to try and go international here and get the, you know, see how the Yanks would react to stuff or see, you know, how we react to America. This is uh, an op-ed piece that was done uh, for the New York Times and we're going to play it now. It's about seven minutes long, so stand by and enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, 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 it's great to be here. Great to be here. It's New York Times. It's very exciting. Yes, I can hear you. Yeah. Try and do something with his eyes. Bags like Yoda's ball sack. So you just want me to explain why, why British people are so f***ed off with Boris Johnson, basically. In a way that an American audience can understand, right. Without swearing, obviously. Sorry. Uh, let me think, let me think. Uh, Boris Johnson, a demonstrable liar who's only out for himself. D don't know if that sounds familiar to an American audience. Um, Boris Johnson, a narcissist with shit hair. Um, again, sound familiar? Actually, I can't say liar, can I? Really? Oh, in, in the UK, you can't call them liars. You, you have to say, like, oh, he inadvertently misled Parliament. Seriously, I can just come out and say it. Call him a liar. Oh, God bless America. Okay, let's go for one, shall we? Yeah. The first thing you need to know about Boris Johnson is he's a liar. Trumpian is the ease with which he tells porkies, but Boris is a product of a system that, sorry, sorry porkies, porky pies, lies, you know, cockney rhyming slang, you know, apples and pears, and you, you don't have that, do you? No, of course you don't, American audience, sorry, New York Times. Um, I do, Boris Johnson is a liar. Let's keep, keep it simple, stick to that. All right. Let's start from the beginning, okay? <clears throat> it began with a party. It seems there really might have been a Christmas party at Downing Street. Staff here in number 10 held a large party, seemingly breaking COVID rules. Two parties. New allegations that he broke his own COVID lockdown rules again. 16 of them. 16 separate piss-ups. Most of them when the rest of the country was in full lockdown. You should not be meeting friends. If your friends ask you to meet, 
You should say no. At a time when the Prime Minister was telling us all to have no social contact with friends, colleagues and, in thousands of instances, dying relatives, when the cops were handing out fines for anyone inviting more than two people over for a cup of tea, the people who set those rules were having work drinks, summer garden parties and later Christmas office quiz nights. But the one that got us really riled up two parties were held at number 10 the night before the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral. Boris was forced to apologise to the Queen when it emerged two of those parties took place the night before her husband's funeral. Um, the Queen, she's our head of state, a uh, bit like your president, but you know, she's in her 90s, so she's a lot younger than your guy. So on the day that the Queen sat on her own at her husband's funeral because of rules Boris had set, his closest colleagues in government were taking Alka-Seltzer and the morning after pill, having got blind drunk on BYO, M&S, G&Ts. BYO, bring your own, booze, drink, alcohol, M&S, Marks and Spencers, it's like a British upmarket Walmart, except you can buy butter instead of military-grade assault rifles, G&Ts, gin and tonics, a sort of English alcoholic Sprite. Uh, anyway, all the guidelines were observed. I thought that I was attending a, a work event. Boris denied any knowledge of any parties until it became clear he was at some of them. Mr Speaker, I want to apologise. I.e. he lied to the country and to Parliament. And he did it again this week when he lied to Parliament by denying that he'd previously lied to Parliament. And that's Boris all over. His lies are no secret. He essentially lied to the Queen when he illegally shut down Parliament. He lied to the country when he said Brexit would be good for farming and fishing and trade deals and the economy. He's been fired twice for lying. He was fired as a journalist from the London Times newspaper for simply just making stuff up. And he was fired for lying about shagging someone behind his wife's back. And shagging is English for making love, but in a sort of round the back of the pub next to some bins sort of way. A pub, that's a, a British bar where they serve warm ale and scotch eggs. Scotch eggs, they're boiled eggs covered in sausage meat and breadcrumbs and and they're f***ing disgusting. Sorry, I've just gone a bit off track there, haven't I? It's a bit nervous. New York Times. <laughs> How can someone with demonstrably questionable morals and a more than casual relationship with the truth reach such a powerful position? One word springs to mind. Entitlement. Boris comes from a long succession of posh, upper-class, bumbling idiots who are destined for greatness only because no one has ever, or will ever, tell them they're not. Boris went to Eton, a sort of Hogwarts for wankers, where you get taught Latin and tax avoidance whilst wearing full evening dress. These people have never spoken to a real person in their life, apart from perhaps their chauffeur. Then on to Oxford, where Boris Johnson was part of the infamous Bullingdon Club, a fun, elite social club for the boys. Activities included smashing up restaurants and burning £50 notes in front of homeless people allegedly. But, but you know, it was great fun at the time. And the British government is full of them. Entitled assholes. sorry, sorry, entitled assholes with a Bentley and a nanny making decisions for us all about things that they will never understand. Aristocrats running the fifth largest economy in the world whilst allowing 30% of British children to live in relative poverty, where the rich get richer and the poor literally get 
hungrier. Millionaires who spend their time in government giving tax breaks and PPE contracts to their rich mates. Cannibals, self-serving parasites, tapeworms in tiaras, swimming through the intestines of the state, sucking all the goodness out of it for their own repugnant gratification. Boris was born into wealth. He never wanted for anything, never really earned his place in the world. A narcissistic serial shagger, an opportunistic liar who's happy to work outside the law and the realms of accepted decency and who has dragged his once great political party into scandal and moral bankruptcy. Sound familiar? You can see where I'm going with this, right? Boris and Trump, both products of a broken political system that rewards ignorance and hubris. And like Trump, Boris says he loves his country, yet Boris and his cabal of vicious right-wing populists show open disdain for all the things good about it. The NHS, the welfare state, teachers and judges, the courts, they hate the BBC and allow corporations to churn raw sewage into our rivers and beaches, selling off and deregulating anything they can for a quick buck, allowing and openly encouraging the country to rot from the inside out so they can sell it for scrap to the highest bidder. Bring it back a bit. Yeah, too much. Too much. It, it was the self-serving parasites, wasn't it? Okay, let's, let's go for another. Actually, can I get a cup of tea? No, lads. Jonathan. No, lads. Jonathan Pie News. At Jonathan Pie News on Twitter. JonathanPie.com. That is actually comedy. But you could take it for being 100% serious and accurate. There's nothing that he says there in that polemic or diatribe that isn't um, um, fully verifiable or fully yeah. accurate. And it's actually good. Thomas said at the start, we're going to go backwards to go forwards. It's quite extraordinary. I think that's just about two or three weeks ago at this stage when we were at the real epicentre of the whole party gate scandal where... Um, Johnson and his Conservative government looked under serious pressure. They're under police investigation now, at this stage. Um, so, and now, just three weeks later, as events, dear boy, events, as Harold Macmillan said, have moved on, Johnson is starting to look more like a Prime Minister. Not quite as good as what he could be, or any other Prime Ministers around the world are, or Presidents, or Taoiseachs are around the world. But <clears throat> we seem to have, we seem to have um, forgotten the visceral um, reaction that there was amongst the British public. British people so fucked off with Boris Johnson is the first sentence I think that Jonathan Pye actually uses there. Yeah. And it was for a whole variety of reasons. The real slap in the face that Johnson and his cronies and his mates in number 10 um, the, the, the lifestyle they lived during the, um, during the real kind of um, dark days of the pandemic with the parties, with the suitcases for bringing in booze, with the wine cooler in, 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 in the back of the, of the kitchen, that type of stuff. So to me, I remember that piece, Luke, from a couple of weeks ago, but it's, it's amazing how things moved on, have moved on. And Johnson now um, trying to re-establish himself as a world leader. And that, in its own way, through the prism of maybe other events like Brexit and things, isn't quite being as effective as it could be. Yeah, Tom, I thought a few weeks ago we'd have to have an emergency at political because I thought he was gone. Absolutely, yeah. I don't know what you thought. I'm, I'm dumbstruck by the piece that you just played. It's just, um, I, I can't add anything to it, to be honest. Yeah, but it's accurate. Uh, yeah. It's accurate. I don't know if it's very tasteful, 
But it is accurate. It's, well, it, it's the old adage as well that a week is a long time in politics. I know I'm going to be over-egging this or over-stressing this, but the fact that that now seems so dated at this stage, that yeah. Johnson would appear to be the kind of the, 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 um, the Teflon um, Prime Minister in that it looks like because of a calamity in, in, in Europe with Ukraine, that um, he looks like um, that this whole party gate thing, which I said, which, which was really, really um, um, putting that government under serious pressure and putting him personally under serious pressure, um, it looks like now, well, it remains to be seen. Again, who knows in a couple of weeks' time, yeah. but I suspect that the party gate now might just become a damp squib. Yeah, I suppose the irony of it being that it, it was like, you know, there were leaks and leaks and leaks, and then they sort of went off and they started putting. Um, uh, you know, the, the police inquiry that wasn't, and there wasn't going to be an inquiry, mm. and then you could sort of see, no, this is going to wind up with an inquiry, and then it's a little bit like, there were still leaks and leaks and leaks, but then it was like, oh, we've sent 300 photos off to the police, and they have they have an inquiry going on, so maybe we'll sort of stop what we're doing because the police inquiry. Now, yes, they were using cover, yeah. they were using that as cover uh, as well, which would lead you to believe, yeah. like, the, the Metropolitan Police in London, and I think we've had the Commissioner Cressida Dick has actually yeah. had resigned or had yeah. retired as well, well. She was told they were questionable yeah. in some of their um, work, you put it that yeah. way. Um, she, she was told by her uh, political employer that he no longer had confidence in her. Like this, just deflectionary tactics, yeah. you know, in a way to sort of try and get him through something. And lo and behold, along comes events uh, from east, from the east, and I, I, there's an argument now that you would say that, you know, the UK are out of the EU mm. and, you know, the EU seems to, you know, in its own way has done two very interesting things in that Germany has started to supply arms. Yes. Which hasn't happened since World War Two. Yeah. And it's like they've acted quickly and then the UK had this whole thing about, you know, oh, well, you know, we mightn't, we sort of welcome people, but we won't really welcome them. And then the EU says that they're going to let Ukrainian, you know, migrants come in, come in yeah. literally, without, um, I suppose, visas and stuff mm. like that. And then they sort of have to half backtrack on it, but then they mightn't really backtrack on it. And the whole thing... No, goes, they won't. Yeah. They but, won't. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a core issue. It's been a core issue in the UK, or not more specifically, because it's, it's, it's important not to tar Wales and Scotland with this same brush, but it's been a core issue in England since 2016, and even previous to in establishing Brexit. And taking back control. Emigration. Emigration. The taking back control is another issue, but the emigration is your absolute foundation stone in a lot of ways what it is that Brexit is about. We don't want any more um, foreigners coming in here. Like there was, there was a, a Conservative MP in the height of, 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 of this week stood up in, in Westminster, Sir Edward Lee, I think is his name, talking about Lincolnshire has done its bit for Ukrainians. We've taken enough. We've enough taken it's yeah. awful stuff. Like it, it really is awful stuff. So that's an absolute core principle now when it comes to um, when it comes to England. But I stress, it's not the core principle for Scotland and for Wales. Now, Scotland, as we know, voted to stay within, or wanted yeah. to stay within the, the, the European Union. Wales voted to leave. But you can see the fissures and the cracks now within the United Kingdom itself now in this. Yeah, not the so second, united. Not so united. But they're taking that control then, of course. Again, that was another basic foundation stone for the whole of Brexit, in that we can take back control and we can be really, really quick to make decisions. And, you know, and they made a lot of hay on that, Maria, on the vaccination programme um, at the beginning, or this time, uh, just over a year ago, 
how they were able to kind of move more quickly than the European Union, which wasn't really true, and nothing was preventing them, if they were members of the European Union, from, 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 from implementing the, the whole programme quickly. So there was your taking back control with the response to the pandemic and taking back control now with response to international affairs of a kind of a military and invasion nature. They still look a bit leaden and a bit kind of not quite at the races when you compare them. And the EU has loads of problems and loads of issues, but the EU, in fairness, um, don't um, to think that that number of countries can make these type of decisions this quickly, you know, in a coherent fashion, um, is not something to be, um, to be sneezed at, most definitely. They deserve credit for that, the EU, at this point. Yes. Tom, I'll bring it back to you from a sporting point of view. Roman Abramovich and Chelsea. Right. Abramovich has long, Paul, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, long been seen as maybe not quite an admirer of Putin, but has been accommodated and facilitated and become very rich as a result of Putin. Mm. And now he has said he's going to sell Chelsea. Divest to, himself of Yes, with the Chelsea. money going to charity, the ultimate irony. Mm. Like, and my great uh, esteemed colleague, the, you know, the Right Honourable uh, Mr. Rees Mogg, uh, apparently uh, sold about £40 million worth of shares in a, a Russian company that he had a few weeks ago. And the whole... Uh, there's, it's in the background where the Tory party, and this is where you always come back to, Brexit had nothing to do really with the EU. It was more with the Tory party and the Tory party having a fight within themselves about the Tory party. There are allegations that there are a number of uh, oligarchs and Russian people that have donated handsomely to the Tory party in the last number of years. And that, you know, they've nearly facilitated them. Now, you, one could argue, we probably have facilitated a few of them as well. You've alluded to previously that uh, the IFSE, the, uh, up in the docks in Dublin, mm. that there are companies there of dubious origin. And if you look at the sporting point of view, uh, earlier on in the week, they said that uh, Poland weren't going to play Russia. Another country said they weren't going to come out and play Russia. And then UEFA said, oh, no, no, we're not going to expel Russia. And then <clears throat> a day or two later, well, no, we won't expel them, but they might play under, we're Russia, but we're not really called Russia, you know? Yeah. And this is nonsense. But this is all because it's all so embedded uh, with money and a bit like they've just embedded themselves into culture, be it sport, be it whatever. We'll say Formula One, that we'll say motor racing came out after a day or two and sort of said, okay, lad, we actually won't uh, have a race in Russia this year. Yeah. Right? But they had no problem taking money off them for the last number <laughs> of years. Gazprom had signed a new three year deal with the UEFA, uh, I think about something like 80 million euros over three years to be one of the headline sponsors for the Champions League. Yeah. You see the logos on the side of the pitch, you know? And the World Cup was in Russia. So Putin right. got his way with that, yeah. you know. Winter Olympics, money, a couple of years exactly ago. in Sochi, money, 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 mm. and sort of money being laundered, money being washed. Tom, well, I, I kind of asked you guys about the spelling of oligarch before we started, 
and um, yeah, it's it's one of those interesting uh, terms that was only heard of probably in historic term when you spoke about Russia, and. Uh, I've been listening to different commentators since the war began in Ukraine, and there was one English commentator who basically um, he wrote an awful lot about Putin when uh, how do you say he had a podcast a few years back, and basically he said that um, Putin, when he had a disruptive oligarch, he brought him to court. And he brought the biggest oligarch that he could find to court and put him into a cage yeah. in front. Did you hear? Did you hear about this? No, I remember. I remember that. I do remember that. Actually. And yeah. basically, uh, he was sentenced to ten years imprisonment. And another oligarch came to Putin and said, "How do we not become <coughs> that oligarch that mm -hmm. goes into the cage?" And he turned around to the oligarch and he said, "Half." And that's enough from a point of view of what he meant. Putin wanted half of the wealth of that particular oligarch in relation to his company and his financial affairs. He just basically said, half. Mm. I want half of your profits. You see, this is the thing. Um, it's uh, a mafia, it's a, he's a mafia-style dictator. It's, it's, it's an authoritarian mafia, Isn't it? absolutely. But you see, we, I suppose, you, you go back historically and you take... Um, um, Winston Churchill's famous quote describing Russia as, as a riddle wrapped in an enigma inside a mystery. It's, um, it's a country we're only starting to learn. It's been there in plain sight for the last number of years over Putin's era, which is almost 20 years now at this stage. But we kind of, in the West, chose maybe to ignore it um, to our obvious, at this stage, detriment. Um, but we had this opinion even before or even at the, the very early days of this um, Ukrainian war um, that all oh, the oligarchs will pull the plug on Putin and they'll bring him back to heel. He's only there as a, as, as, as a puppet for the oligarchs. They're so powerful, like you were talking there, Luke, about being around the world, spreading their tentacles, using their influence with money, um, most especially, most especially in, in London and England and the Conservative Party. But it actually seems that's not how it works. It's closer to the model you're outlining there, Thomas, that Putin um, decrees which oligarch um, can operate and he takes his cut, he takes his mafia cut, or his close henchmen take their mafia cut from it as well. So the oligarchs have a very minimal influence, um, it would seem, on how events will manifest and develop themselves. Putin is the main man, he is the boss, you know, he is the capo el capo of the he whole is. thing. Yeah. That's what it is. So that, so that train of thought has to be thrown out in the last week. And the oligarchs now, are no more so than Abramovich, are frantically running around trying to protect in so far as they can the assets that they have established That's right. whether it's Chelsea Football Club or whether it's um, whatever Mayfair apartment or um, Kentish, Kent Mansion or whatever it actually is they're really on a struggle to protect those because they're, those assets are being I don't believe they're being seized but they are being um, frozen you might have seen during the week the um, the 600 million euro or 600 million dollar 512 foot um, luxury yacht that was. Um, um, oh yes, the Ukrainian tried in, tried to sink it. No, that, that was a different <laughs> one. Sorry, <laughs> that was another one down in Spain. This was in Hamburg in Germany. Okay. Um, so the, the the German government 
um, have taken control of that yacht now at this stage, or frozen it. You know, yeah. um, this, this man, I think his name was Yusmanov. Um, oh, yeah. the, the, good, good old the, Russian name. Yeah, yes. good old Russian name. So they've done that. This man also owns property in England. He's got a big fancy, um, got a big fancy, um, just, he, this is just a, as an example, he's got a big fancy palace in near Guildford called Sutton Palace. So there's no move at all on that yet. You might have seen, and this goes back to your point about the Conservative Party, they made all the bright noises last week, but it's empty rhetoric. Yeah. They're, they're definitely, they're giving Abramovich time to, get vest, or to divest himself or to sell Chelsea. They're giving the oligarchs who have funded them for the last 10, 15 years, the Conservative Party, directly the Conservative Party, they're giving them time to move their money, to move their assets, you know, so that they won't have to be seized. I think one of the banks that they kind of froze, the bank is frozen, that's your headline on the BBC, on ITV, on Channel 4, but when you read the fine detail, you've 18 months to get your affairs in order. <laughs> For God's sake. You know, that's a joke. You know, it really is one of those Russian banks. That's a joke. So, and that does, Luke, tie in directly. It's quite, and in fairness, there have been journalists that have been trying to make this point for a long time. You take the likes of an Irishman, Peter Gagan. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote a book there a year ago, Democracy for Sale. Um, he's involved with a kind of a website publishing company, Open Democracy. He's a man from Longford. This is a lad from Longford who's into the core of all this stuff. He's been trying to do this for years. Carol Cadwallader, you might be familiar with some of her work as a journalist as well, trying to identify the impact <clears throat> that the Russian money has had both in the States, and we've seen that with the Mueller report, we might talk about that later, and more specifically hard cash in the Tory party. And you can, there are lists, there are lists now at this stage published of Tory after Tory after Tory, £25,000 here, £15,000 there, £30,000 there. You know, it goes on and on and on. It's rotten. They seem to be rotten to the core. If you even take it, if it's a Johnsonian thing or this, conservative, this particular Conservative government, it's broader than that. It was there in Theresa May's time. It was there, Jeremy Hunt, who was the person up against Johnson for leadership, Seventy-five or £80,000 from the Russians. You know, so it's rotten. The Tory party are rotten to the core. Yeah, all you they know, want all is the money. People, if you look at the good people, you know, the Rory Stewarts, if you remember those, yes. some of those, and you know, they're gone now. They've been pushed out. They're not there. So what you've got now is this rotten core of a political party that's been bought, that's been utterly, totally, and fundamentally bought at the highest level. Yeah, at the highest level. Yeah, absolutely. And they've run, you know, they've, you can see it in their attitude to Brexit, in their attitude to Northern Ireland, the protocol, their attitude to international agreements that they sign and then renege on straight away, Lord Frost, Jacob Rees-Mogg, whoever, you know. Um, they, you know they, they, they don't care about us. They only care about themselves. I think that's, look, it's, I think this, even more so than anything, is bringing it, or it should. Look, Boris Johnson can do those press conferences, can go to the, he can have an armoured personnel carrier behind him, he can be shaking hands with all the military people that he wants, but he is bought, and he has oh, been yeah. bought by the Russians. Yeah, and compromised. He has put the son of a KGB agent into the House of Lords. This yeah. is how brazen, this is how brazen Lord Lebedev of... Um, Mayfair in Siberia, I think is his name. Check that one. You know, this is yeah, what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. And then to feel or to think that this is a world leader that's going to help us navigate through this calamitous war in Ukraine um, with Russia. I'm sorry, I can't, I'm not buying that. He's a Quisling. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, we spoke earlier briefly about um, his uh, conference in Poland a couple of days ago mm. when you had the Ukrainian um, journalist. journalist that stood up and as I said I only caught I didn't catch all of it but she started off 
you know, quite calm yeah. as a journalist stands up in a room, and then it went into all-out passion. Yeah. But what she said, um, I don't have a script of it, but from what I could gather, it, there was an awful lot of home truths that an awful lot of journalists weren't saying, mm. that an awful lot of commentators yeah. weren't willing to say. I suppose, Tom, I can, I can play it's it. It's actually if, available if, if, online. If you, yeah, if you want to listen to it, if you, if you right. hold on for two minutes, I, Interesting I, I, on I'll that, just it. a little point as you play it, Luke, there as well. It was interesting, again, it shows you, and this, is, this has been a significant, the whole war for the last week, since last Thursday, Wednesday night, stroke Thursday morning. You know, a lot of it is, and it just shows you the world we live in now, a lot of it is played out on media, and even more specifically, social media. Absolutely. And people would say that the, the Zelensky from Ukraine um, and, the, and the Ukrainian people are winning hands down the mm. social media. Now, I, I, this sounds trite or trivial. Um, it's awful when people are being bombed and childcare centres are being bombed and, and, and people are being put under that kind of stress. But they're winning this war on social media. But interestingly, that journalist, that Ukrainian journalist that put that pressure on Boris Johnson, she was initially presented as a Ukrainian journalist. By the time it got to later in the day, in um, BBC News and all the different, um, this is just an interesting little outlets. element, yeah. outlets, all the different outlets, she was, had to be described as a Ukrainian activist. You know, they, they, that puts, you might think that means nothing, but it does actually significantly mean something. You're cheapening, you're, you're, you're saying, oh, it's, it's an emotional response. She's an activist. She's, she's, you know, she's not sure. a professional journalist. She was a professional journalist making professional points about, With historic, about, historical, about historical agreements that had been, and look as if they're about to be reneged on. Uh, a woman uh, from uh, my team is now in Bila Tserkva, and she is there with two kids. And uh, Russian military is over there, and she's so much afraid that she will be shot. Kharkiv, the city where I was studying, was bombarded today, fully, the downtown square. So you're talking about the stoicism of Ukrainian people, but Ukrainian women and Ukrainian children are in deep fear because of bombs and missiles which are going from the sky. And Ukrainian people are desperately asking for the West to protect our sky. We are asking for the no-fly zone. We are saying response that it will trigger World War III. But what is the alternative, Mr. Prime Minister? To observe how our children are, instead of, mis instead of uh, planes, are protecting NATO from the missiles and bombs? What's the alternative for the no-fly zone? We have planes here. We have air defense system in Poland, in Romania. NATO has this air defense. At least this air defense could shield the Western Ukraine so that these children with women could come to the border. It's impossible now to cross the border. There are 30 kilometers of lines. Imagine crossing the border with a baby or with two children. I'm so glad that Samantha Power is coming here to the border from the Polish side. Let her come to the border from the Ukrainian side and see that. Britain guaranteed our security under Budapest Memorandum. So you're coming to Poland. You're not coming to Kiev, Prime Minister. You're not coming to Lviv. Because you're afraid. Because NATO is not willing to defend. Because NATO is afraid of the World War III. But it is already started. And these are Ukrainian children who are there taking the hit. You're talking about more sanctions, Prime Minister. But Roman Abramovich is not sanctioned. He's in London. His children are not in the bombardments. His children are there in London. Putin's children are in Netherlands, in Germany, in mansions. Where are all these mansions seized? I don't see that. I see that my family members, that my team members are saying that we are crying. We don't have what to rob. Well, this is what is happening, Prime Minister. 
Well, thank you. You know, and that's basically Boris uh, sort of looking at this lady, sort of with his head held down pretty much the, the whole time, and no reaction at all. Well, you no, know? but the thing is, he, he just went white because she stuck it to him big time. No, I, the, the, that's the first time I've listened to the whole lot of it. And I mean, the no-fly zone is, is something that they can't really contemplate because of historic reasons. It was mm -hmm. the Battle of Britain and all, the, and all that went with that. But the thing is, um, she makes a really good point in relation. It was actually, it wasn't Putin's children. It was Abramovich's children. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, but the thing is, it's selective oligarching so to speak, as in we'll put one or two out there that have a big media profile, oh, we're going to whatever, but yeah, there's an awful lot ones. That, that are getting away. Just back to what we were talking about earlier on, Paul, about why Putin's wealth isn't too easy to get your hands on, is because all his oligarchs, he owns more than half of their wealth, and yeah. they've got apartments, and they've yes. got palaces, and they've yeah. got all their different bits and pieces. But he actually is the... the, 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 the you see, there, there's a massive industry um, within London and within other cities around the world um, supporting this, this, you know, shelf companies, lawyers, um, solicitors, Queen's councils, you know, creating this kind of fog where you can't determine actual ownership, who actually owns it. But make no mistake, there is huge influence with Russian money right around the world, but more particularly and more specifically in London, you know, they talk, call it Moscow Grad or London. Oh, or, there's a Red know. Square in London as yeah, well, isn't this, there? So this, yeah, so this is what this is the significance of it. And it's, the irony of this is that Putin, now as we can see it, as he has kind of, you look back over some of his speeches over the years, you have this grotesque hatred of what we might, I suppose, call Western social democratic or liberal democratic values. You know, as as kind of pronounced or as presented by the likes of the European Union. There's a, a, an intense hatred, and you can understand why there would be an intense hatred. And I would suspect in China with Xi Jinping in Beijing, they have the same intense hatred. You see, if they're, you know, to all intents and purposes, an authoritarian um, leader of a country, the last thing you want, and we saw this with the fall of the, of, of the last, if you want to call it Russian Empire, USSR, we saw this with that. If you have liberal democracies right up to your border, um, that's going to put pressure on your system. And you, have, you can only exist in an authoritarian system through you know, not respecting democratic principles, not having elections, making sure the people don't rise against you. So if your people are looking over the border and they're seeing a Western civilization that apparently looks um, like a better type of life, and it no, definitely is the most basic of things, we can choose who it is that leads us at any given time. Now, it's a faulty system. There's no such thing is a perfect system, but it's a whole damn sight better than an authoritarian system where your life is kind of um, at somebody else's um, decision, you know, if you want to protest against it. So, so basically... It's in his... It's, you know, the point I was making, the irony of it is, with his apparent hatred for our system, they bloody love to spend their money and buy all the trinkets and the soccer clubs and the Absolutely. stately mansions yeah. and the big 512-foot-long yachts and the, you know, the, the, they, they love that stuff, oh, yeah? but they don't want, they don't want the kind of, they, want, they, they don't want to do the hard graft when it comes to kind of social democracy. They don't want that. So there's a kind of an irony there in that. Um, there's no doubt about that. But well, I think, yeah. I know, I, I, no, I, I agree. I, I called into electrical um, suppliers in Ennis um, two days ago, and uh, the lad behind the, the counter, he's very, very, he, he said, oh, take a, take a look at my phone here. He said, do you see this, right? And it was a picture of a swimming pool. And there was lots of children in the swimming pool. And there was one parent. And the parent was holding up Ukraine. 
Palestine child was still swimming yeah, well, in the good, water, and then there was a list. There was Yemen. Yeah, that's there was all the bits point. and pieces. But yet, yeah. the, the what you call it, the parent yeah. was holding Hold up, up Ukraine. Yeah. That's a that's a good point, Thomas. I was I was hoping we get to make it today because there's no bloody easy answer to it. I've thought, you know, we've all probably thought about that, or a lot of people have thought about that over the last week. Syria, Syria. We can we, we can take all these conflicts, and and they do flash every so often. You know, well. Palestine and Israel, it flashes in a grotesque and awful way, whether it's invasions or whether it's bombardments, um, and often, you know, through the suffering of children, most definitely. So that's a good, that's a good um, uh, yeah, it just, piece of, it, it, it of, just, of, that you saw. Yeah. Um, Yemen with Saudi Arabia, that's ongoing, it's continuous, it doesn't stop, it's been there for years. We're arming the Saudi Arabians, you know, from the West, we're selling them military um, uh, weapons. weapons to actually do this, again, in a lot of cases, to children, to women, to families, you know, we're doing that. Um, Syria, that was there, we saw that, we looked at it. The Russians, actually, it's a little That's bit right. like the Spanish Civil War in 1930s, it was, a, it was a precursor to the Second World War. The Russians possibly learnt a lot of their, um, this is what scares you when you look now at the potential for Kiev or those kind of cities, you know, when you see what the Russians did to Aleppo, when they literally raised an historical city. But again, it's, I think it's a great point. Why is it that we have now reacted in the way it is we have reacted to the Ukrainian situation and we don't do that or we choose not, we choose not to do that when it comes to Yemen, when it comes to um, Palestine, when it came to Syria and it's probably ongoing in Syria. It's a very good question and we, if we were really serious about our Western values and our democracies, we should be really asking the question about that as well. We but I think it's what, I think it should be. But it's, it's what you said about how, how close are you comfortable with? It's coming very, very. It's come very it's close to Europe. Yeah. We're all so familiar with Europe. We do. Yeah, we go. We ski in Andorra. We go to Austria. We, we have. You know. I mean, I was talking to a chap yesterday, and he has friends in in Russia, basically. And I was like, really? And I said, oh yeah, I know such and such in Ukraine yeah. as well. No, I, I think we've, I think we've actually known very little about Ukraine up to now as well. Mm. I think because of the fact that they're over there maybe you know well we saw we, we've had snippets we've seen it in donald trump's time yeah. with his first impeachment was was cornerstone our foundation or the foundation of his first impeachment was ukraine we've seen it but i still go back to your question yeah that could be it it's in our it's on our european um mass or our european mainland if you want to call it that it's the ukrainian it's a conflict there so and i suppose maybe there's there's echoes then of the Second World War, perhaps with it as well. But ultimately, it comes down to, and this is the big thing about the last week, it's the humanity of the situation. It's the oh, humanity yeah. of the Ukrainian people. And, it's in, and you're why, seeing it. You're seeing it. seeing it. But why do we not have that humanity to Yemenis, to Palestinians, um, to Syrians? Or why did we not have? Are they lesser people from another part of the world because they're not European? Is it something like that? Or what is it? But well, we really have to, we really have to, if we're serious about this, uh, we really have to look at all those conflicts. We have to look at them properly and honestly as a Western... Um, yeah, and I mean, but you, you said about, the, about why do we care more about what's happening close to us or whatever, but you see what's happening on the border now with, with Poland. They're, they're saying there's, there's different um, elements of, um, what's it called, racism? Well, I can't even pronounce whatever now what I'm trying to say. But the thing about it is um, they're not allowing everyone across the border. If you're a Ukrainian, yes. But if you happen to be studying in Ukraine yeah. and you're from Saudi Arabia or you're from India, whatever like that, yeah. you're in a different line. 
Yeah. You're not in the same, yeah. and you gotta wait. You gotta wait. So there, there's a, a, there is a little bit of discrimination going yeah. on, and a lot of journalists have come out and said, you know what, it's not, it's well, not black and white. Well, you've got to remember that even within the EU, and I, I was extolling its virtues there just a couple of minutes ago. But you've got to remember, you take countries like Poland, take countries like Hungary, who are on the front line of this Ukrainian-Russian. Um, war at the moment and taking, as you said there, the refugees in. But those countries, you know, they're not particularly pursuing European ideals when it comes to some of the issues that you outlined there. Ultra-nationalist in their own way as well. Orban in Hungary is actually still fluttering a few eyelashes up to last week anyway in the direction of Moscow. Um, you know, like I say, it's not perfect. Our European Union is not perfect, and some of that stuff. Yeah, and po I mean, Poland. Poland, as much as they are in the EU, I mean, they have a big fascist community going on as well over yeah, there. Right-wing government and a right-wing government in Ukraine as well. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, but back to Luke. What Luke was saying about Ibrahimovic or not Ibrahimovic? Wrong, wrong guy. Yeah, Abramovic. What's the, who's the most who's the most famous Ukrainian soccer player? Shevchenko. Probably. Andrei Shevchenko. Yes. And his wife was the Moscow uh, Shevchenko. Did he play with Liverpool? No. No. Um, Who did he play with? He played in the Premier League. Chelsea. 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 Oh, Chelsea. More, more links. Yeah. More the Rupert. Yeah. More like, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, look, look, at your, look at your man, the world champion boxer. Um, on the front line. Tishko. Tishko. Um, he, well, he, he actually went back to politics. There's another. Um, he's, is it Lukashenko? No, it's not. No, that's, that's the Belarusian. There's, there's another. He was a brilliant. Um, Oh, which, was, it, was, it, was it the Athens Olympics or the Beijing Olympics? There was a, he was a welterweight or a light middleweight, maybe around middleweight. Um, he was a serious operator and he became, he's a world champion professional boxer. He has gone back. He was living in, in the west coast of America, California. He's still a professional boxer. Yeah. What's his name? But he's gone back. He's gone back to Ukraine. Yeah. They say that there are 80,000 Ukrainians um, have returned to the country. Maybe that addresses your point again, Thomas, about why is it that, that we, we, we seem to have become so invested in this. Do you have links? It does, those links do seem to, that, that, that emotional, which in its own way, you know, it's, it's, it's powerful, but again, um, you've got to be careful of it, but maybe that emotional um, attachment that's there, you know, you have strong, I suppose you have strong Ukrainian... Um, it's become embedded in us, right? Within a week. Yeah. Right, because you start to say, oh, the Klitschko brothers. Oh, yeah, geez, they, were, they were great boxers. That's what we're right? talking about, those You know, yeah. you start to say, uh, Shevchenko. Oh, geez, he was a great soccer player. Yes, we just understand right? that. Oh, he played for Chelsea. Mm -hmm. It's okay, but he was a great soccer player. You know, but he got paid loads of money when he was at Chelsea. But they're connections. But it's sort of like, it's media, it's social media, it's all the rest of it. And you start to go, Asher, Asher they're, they're, they're a great bunch of lads. Yeah, but last night, last night when I was when I was coming out from Atlanta, they were and off the ball. They were talking about Frank Lampard, and there was a story that broke that he was being interviewed by one of the Everton uh, shareholders, who was also Russian. Yeah, Russian. <laughs> and he had to come out publicly and deny it was the board. He was not involved in. But of course, again, media talk. You know what I mean. Uh, what's called that he was involved in interviewing Frank Lampard for the post <laughs> and the lads were saying listen he's a, so he's, a, he's a coach he's a soccer coach leave him alone yeah. don't be yeah, dragging but, him into but it but you see Tommy this is the whole thing you talk about dragging him into it I said we, we have culture we have history we have politics and we have p politicians and we have oligarchs and we have democracy and we have communism they're all now intertwined, and it's a bit yeah. like, I'll take a bit of this. Yeah, there's some of it that's maybe not so nice, but I'm just going to ignore that, and you know, things will be all sort of nice and smooth along, and then something like this comes along, and you're there, 
all. No, I just want to bring that's you back. I, want no, to I was just going to say, I think there's a, really, there, there's a point on that. Sorry, it's a really no. good point. Even, that's a, it is a really good point. And I did even expand on it a small bit. We used to do a thing here, myself and John, when we did our show. <laughs> and the basis for it was that politics swims downstream of culture. We've just talked here about sport. We could talk about other culture. And that's culture. That's part of a culture. You know, you were looking out the window here at, at Scarif GEA grounds. That's our culture. It's part of our culture. We talked about the, the Shevchenkos. Vasil Lomachenko, that's, and check him out, I'll tell you, you've, you've never seen a better boxer, never mind the Klitschkos, um, check him out from the Olympics and some of his world title fights. You know, that's culture, so maybe that's, it's the culture feeds into the politics of it then, or it comes down, it feeds down into the politics, and maybe that's then so why it is we have this, or why it is we seem to be more invested in this awful war than what we, you know, can you name a Yemeni um, person? You know, can you get a Yemeni or no. Palestinian outside of the, politi the political people, Abbas or, or, or Arafat? No. And to be honest with you, Paul, we'd look and say, oh, geez, that's not great what's going on over there. We don't really care. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. it hasn't affected us. You know, yeah. not, not, not to a, any large extent. But in the sense, if you take yeah. the Syrian one, I'm not laboring the point here, take the Syrian one now, and like I, I use the analogy between the Spanish Civil War and the, and the Second World War. Now, you know, you could see the Russians so involved, so engaged um, with the Syrian one, and to a certain extent, watching them that the Americans weren't going to be involved, got all their training. You know, we, we, we should have been yeah. aware, involved. We should have seen it as this a kind like of a Spain dry run, as, as, yeah. as a dress rehearsal. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it's the culture. I do, the more I've been thinking about, trying to think about this all week, so it's great to come in here <laughs> and get a bit of the fog out of your brain. Um, I think that's the key to it, actually. It's our cultural association, whether that's the European mainland, whether it's sport, it could be somebody else, it could be um, the ballet. Yeah. <laughs> that they might be yeah. into ballet from Ukrainian. Or, you know, so I think that's, what it is. that's what's making the difference in this the, one. Sorry, go on. No, go on. I, I, no, I was going to say, see, the other thing, um, back to a, a sporting context, um, the die-hard die Irish soccer fans, right? They buy their diary at the beginning of the year and they basically kind of go, right, what fixtures have we away from home, right? Yeah. So literally they look and they say, right, we're going there by Ryanair, we're going to Azerbaijan by such and such, we're going to Israel for the match, whatever. And they just, they, 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 they plan their year around the okay. matches, you right? Did yourself, did the you did I've been there. Yeah. So, I mean, it was one of those things. And Luke and myself, when we went to Mainz, we went to see, um, what you call it, our friend, the man from Italy, Trapattoni's uh, Tra first competitive match <laughs> in Mainz, Mainz because they, it was Georgia they were playing. Yeah. I was going to say Georgia in Mainz. Yeah. And they had to play in a neutral country because yeah. they, was they it was the country the Russians had. That's the right, Russians that were, were 20. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, Russians and yeah. Know, they had invaded Georgia. That's right. And they that's had right. to come over to Mainz. So we said, mm. Oh, Jesus, Kerry, Kerry Mainz, happy days, or Kerry Frankfurt yeah. Mainz. We yeah. went over and like the, the amount of, uh, as I said, like diehard fans. You ain't seen it until you've met Irish yeah. fans that literally have a badge from every single country yeah, on a little tea yeah. cozy hat that they bring everywhere yeah. religiously. Yeah. Yeah. But they've been, they've been to, to the most obscure places to watch matches. Mm. I remember, um, and uh, oh, she's another, another crazy Irish fan, but she, they, they were put up in a, in a mental institution, <laughs> right? Told it, this was hotel accommodation and it was a psychiatric institution in Azerbaijan. <laughs> Azerbaijan. And they, were, they, had, they went in and like laws cutting bits and pieces. 
and literally there was stickers over what would be the local kind of thing, you know. And literally it was all hospital beds and yeah. bits and pieces. But this was their accommodation <laughs> that they had gone through Abbey Travel for or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. But this was the fun mm. of exploring mm -hmm. countries you'd never visit, mm. only you were going to see the lads, yeah. Yeah. you know. So I mean a lot of places let's say, uh, you know, have been your visited point? by some... But your point there, Thomas, the more open the world is, the better it actually is, the more closed in it is. If you become a closed society, if you start to look inward, like Russia, or now to another extent, like England, and I keep saying England rather than the UK, but you, yeah. the more inward looking or the more kind of um, closed you become, the worse ultimately it will be in the broader sense of things then. Then you start to kind of get a bit paranoid about things, then you start to think about things too much and you haven't got the influences of the broader world and then you, in an awful scenario, you end up where it is that we actually are now today. Yeah. And can, can I just sort of um, bring the narrative back a little bit because um, I, I know I've mentioned before and we do give credit to them um, uh, sometimes they're not so great but the vast majority of the time the BBC I would still class as being impartial mm. and there's a programme on BBC News I said if I turn on the telly that's about the only thing that I'll, I'll look at and Sky every now and again as well um, Ross Atkins has a show called Outside Source okay and um, they rejigged it about a year and a half ago where it sort of it was more being done for social media purposes uh, that the, the format of the show but they have done some very good descriptions of sort of trying to uh, explain stuff and I'd, I'd call it a bit like history for dummies and mm. we are now all dummies right mm. because there is so much going on everybody's so busy and, and this is happening that's happening that we can barely remember what happened yeah last week, let alone what happened seven or eight years ago. I had forgotten that um, this isn't Russia's first dalliance with Ukraine. They yeah. were there no, eight or nine a, years a, ago. Yeah. You, you, do you remember it's the... Uh, um, yeah. uh, what, what was the... Do you remember the famous one there back in the mid-2000s? The stunning-looking man, a big, tall um, uh, Ukrainian president, or about to become president. I've forgotten his name now. Remember, he was poisoned. Hmm. His face then got all blistered. Yeah. Remember that? He was out on the, on, on the stump, on, on the podium. The Russians tried to poison him. And yeah. then they had their own president in situ, Yankovic, I think Yankovic, was his name, yeah. up to about 2014, 2015. Yeah. So, um, what, so what I'm going yeah. to do is, if you turn on the headphones there again... Luke, just on that, just yeah. on the BBC there, it's really uh, just one thing I noticed, and you can see what was going on there when we started out on this segment <laughs> with Boris Johnson and his kind of his, 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 his different modus operandi. One of his big things and through his culture secretary Nadine Doris, she of the um, get me out of here jungle yeah. fame as a conservative MP but now as a minister in the cabinet um, was to kind of um, defund. undermine, defund, get rid of yeah. the BBC. And it's kind of like anything else, like the EU, like the whole lot, it's got loads of problems, loads of issues, not always the kind of the best thing. Interestingly, this week, apparently, the BBC World Service has become the most listened to channel in Russia. Correct. The Russians. In Russia. The yeah. Russians, because all their own state-sponsored um, media is delivering a certain message and the Russian people themselves, they're not fools, you know, we shouldn't blame the Russian people for this, yeah. um, they're now choosing to listen to the BBC World Service for their information. So that was just a little aside. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting because I've been watching Sky News and the BBC, especially last weekend, and I found Sky News have toned it down an awful lot, even from their reporting, even from their presentation. 
it, I, I thought I was looking at the BBC when I was listening to the, to the, the reporter that's in Kiev, yeah. right? It was very BBC-like, but it wasn't all, um, do you know what I mean, kind of lights and yeah. glam, and not as bad as Fox News, whatever, but yeah, I'm just saying, God. it was very, very toned down. Mm. Mm. There you go. Maybe, yeah. if, as I said, maybe I'm just... And, and poor old Russia today have been taken off the air. Or RT, yeah. You've won less news option, Tom, you won't I think International was still running, though. No, well, got According to Liam Glass. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Anyway, listen, have, have a listen to this, because this is, we say, Ross Atkins. And this outside is from... Outside Source. Outside Source, a great show on, on the BBC okay. News. We say between 7 and 9, evening time, if you've nothing better to do and you sort of, you're a fan of El Politico, you want to sort of see some of the nonsense that we listen to and look at this is that's where you want to go to get get a, a few thoughts and opinions so have a listen to this ukraine's independence came in 1991 the soviet union had collapsed and as it splintered a number of new nations emerged ukraine was one of the largest its population was 52 million it was 1200 kilometers from east to west and as democracy moved east this was a moment of optimism in 1991 Ukrainians celebrated their first election. The US called it momentous. But for all the enthusiasm, democracy couldn't change Ukraine's geography or its history. To the east was Russia. To the west was Poland, Slovakia and Hungary. All three had communist pass. By 2004, all three had joined the European Union. Being pro-Russia or pro-Europe became a fundamental dividing line in Ukrainian politics. And months later, we saw how. Amidst allegations of electoral fraud, what became known as the Orange Revolution began, and two men were the focus. Viktor Yanukovych, who was pro-Russia and who'd initially been declared the winner, and Viktor Yushchenko, here on the right, who was pro-Europe and would become president after a new vote. And while the outcome of that election was settled, relations with Russia were not. In 2010, there was a further twist. Yanukovych was re-elected, and then in 2013, he would take a decision with huge ramifications. As EU leaders arrived for the Eastern Partnership Summit, something was missing. The centrepiece was supposed to have been the signing of an association agreement with Ukraine. But it didn't happen. Under pressure from Russia, Yanukovych walked away from that deal with the EU and another revolution would begin. There were weeks of protests and crackdowns. And in the end, Yanukovych would flee this country estate just outside Kiev and head for Russia. Watching from Moscow was Vladimir Putin. This was his cue to act. First, Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine. It's a peninsula on the Black Sea. Weeks later, pro-Russia rebels seized two regions in the east of Ukraine. Russia already divided Ukrainian politics. Now Putin was dividing the country itself. But the turn towards the West that frustrated him then remains now. One recent poll shows 68% of Ukrainians are in favor of joining the EU. Putin, though, sees Russians and Ukrainians as one people, a single whole. That perception may explain this invasion today, but perhaps there's something else too. The 90s brought a surge of democratic optimism. To Ukraine's current president, this invasion is showing us what Putin thinks of that. Putin started a war against Ukraine, against the whole democratic world. He wants to destroy my country, he wants to destroy our country, everything we've been building, everything we live for. That effort to build a nation began as Ukraine emerged from the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Today, as Russia invades, Ukrainians are seeing the extent of Putin's resentment of what happened then and what's happened since. No, I just think that's a very important history lesson. 
mm. you know, to sort Absolutely. of bring us back to reality. Because yeah. I'll be honest with you, I had forgotten about, yeah. you know, the 2010, 2013, mm. the, or, you know, the Orange Revolution. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. But, oh, that yeah. was Ukraine. You know, I said, because we're now all so caught up with sort of mm. everything. And there's so much knowledge out there you know it's like years ago if something happened you know we all knew about it and we all remembered it because literally it was on the rt news at six o'clock and unless you bought the paper the following day you didn't know anything more about it yeah you know, yeah. now you can pick up your phone and you can go down so many different rabbit holes as we invariably do well, this is, you know? this is a, we, we have never had access to so much information but we've never been as less well informed yes we tend to, I do think, and it's probably part of the way the system is designed, we do tend to get stuck in those rabbit holes. We, yeah. ha we don't have as broad, um, a, uh, an, a, a, as broad a, an interpretation of um, history or events. Or, yeah, but it's because, yeah. Paul, we don't, we we don't like we it. We're them. only we going to take the bits out of it that we like. Yeah, that, and that's what the, you know? the, 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 the modern model actually is. It kind of just it, it, it reaffirms what we want to read rather mm. than what we should read or what we should... Um, study. You know, you, that's a great synopsis there of just the last 20 years, but you can even go back further than that. You can look at the Second World War, you can look at Stalin, you can look at the enforced famines that, that, that happened as a result of kind of Moscow's direction about trying to um, subsume Ukraine into Russia. You know, there's a rich, um, a rich, rich history um, there in, in, in yeah. those two but countries, like you'd say, most definitely. What, what did the EU and the rest of the world do, we'll say, when, uh, you know, he annexed um, Crimea? Nothing. Nothing, 2014. Right. No. Why? Because, uh, well, hang on now, we, we'll be looking to get rid of oil from him. Like, the, yeah. or, sorry, not oil, gas. Gas. You know, and you have the various uh, gas pipelines that, that are mm. coming across. And Nord Stream. You, you yeah. know, Nord, Nord Stream 2, which is... Tom, to just basically explain to you, it's basically a gas pipe, we'll say, from Russia coming into Europe, right? Mm -hmm. And it'll be coming in, uh, Germany would be the main benefactor. Germany have been, and they're the ones that are most, they're the ones that are most um, susceptible or, or, or dependent on energy sources um, from Russia. But in fairness to Germany, under their new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, they've kind of acted really quickly. Number one, we're not going to be part of the development of this gas pipeline. And number two, we're going to move away now from a dependence on Russian yeah, gas. But That's not easy for an economy. No, I know it's not easy to, to do, do, Paul. It's but difficult, but, but at least they have said they're going to do it. Yeah, but that pipeline is finished. It was waiting certification mm. to be turned on. And who we have classed as one of the greatest leaders that Europe has had over the last number of years, Angela Merkel was in charge and approved it. Mm. Yeah. So this is the whole thing where you start to say, yeah, I, like I know you, you have politics and everything else is complicated and it's all the rest yeah. of this, but this whole thing, well, yeah, we mightn't really agree with what some of what Putin is doing, but you look, he's given, he's after buying Chelsea, he's a great, but this you know, the, this all this type stuff, but we yeah. actually need his gas. Is that not a kind of an obvious conversation that, I mean, the world has its reserves and the certain parts of the world that are rich in certain things that other parts don't have. And you yeah. have to, you, you, you have know what I mean? But, and, Especially and, and, in, in, in the, previous, yeah. now, now we're talking about wind and, and solar and so forth, where you can, you can adapt a kind of a universal strategy because mm. it's, it's up in the yeah. sky or it's whatever. But the thing if is, when it comes to fuel, it's yeah. only in certain locations. But I mean, you look at even a more simple product of grain, 
Yeah, for well, making bread. Yeah, that's going to have that will most. Is it sixty percent or something, or forty percent comes from U from Russia? Yeah, or from Ukraine even. Um, Belarus, Ukraine, Russia—they'd be very, very strong in food production. You know, in in, in mm. well, actually, that's starting to manifest itself now. You can see this week. Well, everybody can see it every time you drive past a filling station. Now you're looking at you're looking at one sixty-five, one sixty-eight, uh, one sixty-nine, one seventy-two. Paul, that was that. So last week, <laughs> I, as I, as I was driving over here today, one eighty-five. Yeah, for I, I was talking about diesel. You better for, petrol. for, for petrol. But, but, any of the, but, the point is, but the diesel is one seventy-five. But what, what's going on here as well, and this will be the same thing: commodities and oil is one of the commodities. And this is the thing where, if 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 the world wants to wake up now as well, there are people that are trading commodities, and that is a lot of what it has to do when it comes to oil, when it comes to to grain like wheat or whatever as well. They're buying. Apparently, China now are buying up a lot of. Um, commodities of the world because they feel that there might be a scarcity or a shortage in the second half of this year but then you've got people then are hedging their bets I'm going to buy a ton of wheat at a hundred dollars and I can sell it at 150 but I might pay the hundred now and I can get 25 dollars off the 150 and sell it so that kind of thing yeah. there's a lot of hedging going on there should be no hedging I can't see what hedging contributes to any world economy when we're faced with the pressures it is that we're now they're nothing like the pressures that the people of Ukraine are facing but when we're faced as a society you know in relation to buying food or in relation to traveling to work you know and if companies or individuals or personages are making money on the basis of gambling on the trading of commodities at this point I mean like if we can move fast, and we've proven we can move fast in the pandemic, we've proven we can move fast in sanctions to Russia, we should be able to move fast economically and say, no, not this. But is that not Suspend this. But is that not capitalism, Paul? Democracy? Look, it looks like we're moving into a post-capital. And capital, the thing about capital is, capitalism is, is that it has always been able to reinvent itself. It has always been able to kind of change itself. You know? And if this is our capitalist society, we're getting close now maybe to what Putin thinks himself as well, but if this is our capitalist society, it's not a wrong, it's not a right, and it's not a proper society. And if capitalism can't cater for the people, and this is why we have authoritarian leaders like Trump or like, or like Putin, if capitalism can't cater for itself, or can't, sorry, can't cater for its people, well then it's not doing its job. You know, so capitalism went raw capitalism in Russia in the early 90s after the, after the fall of the USSR. Yeah. And they, people just got really annoyed and they wanted a strong arm leader. You know, so they tried the democratic process with capitalist, but they just went nuts on capitalism. And I'm saying now, if we're in the middle of this kind of nuts capitalism thing where people are hedging on the price of wheat from Ukraine or oil from wherever, and they're putting this kind of pressure on the 99.999% of people around the world when it comes even to the price of foodstuffs or whatever, we're like, that's not good capitalism. It's not good capitalism. And you have to have some break on that type of carry-on. Uh, a couple, of, yeah, a couple of things. The, one of the first things uh, you, you mentioned at the at the beginning was when we spoke about Boris, and it, and it felt like yesterday's news. Things have <laughs> rapidly. Really it was yeah. like we were going back. We were, but the thing is, it didn't feel like a couple of weeks ago. It felt like six months ago or twelve <laughs> months true. ago. It's true. You know, the other thing is, what role will China inevitably have to play in the whole monopoly game? Mm. And the third thing is. Zelensky, as a leader, obviously a patriot, yes. right? A stand-up comedian as well from his former life, yeah. right? But is he a politician? Is he a really good politician? Yeah. Yeah. Because is he driving his, um, how do you say, his passions from the heart? Yeah. 
or is he actually going to turn out to be a really good politician yeah. at the end of the day? I would say he'll either wind up dead within a week or he'll be a martyr. I'm, okay. I'm serious. Yeah. No, I'm not. Well, he says that himself. He says that himself. Luke has played the cynical card very well today at, in relation to, let's say, uh, our debate and what's happening yeah. and stuff, you know, and he's 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 being devil's adversary. Is that the correct <laughs> word? Adversary. Uh, uh, maybe the wrong. Yeah, oligarchs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, no, I'm I'm um, I I think absolutely he could be assassinated. Mm. He could be. Well, they have deliberately. It's uh, or poisoned. Is, is someone tasting yeah, well, they've, food they've, from? Done they've, they've done that. They've done that. You know? They've done that with Ukrainian presidents and in further afield in Salisbury and the whole thing trying to do it, but. The first question you asked, we get that maybe not to get it out of the way, but it's, yeah. a, it's the really, speed of change. It, but it's uh, okay. The, the speed of change. Yeah, we, I think we acknowledge and accept that. Sorry, it's the second question yeah. I meant yeah. to say. We acknowledge the speed of change is quite extraordinary, um, and it just goes back. As I think I said at the start, it just reflects Harold Macmillan, the UK Prime Minister from the fifties. Events, dear boy, events. It comes down to that, and that's how politics works sometimes, and especially geopolitics. And, and in, in a way, you speak about events. I think Boris, in when when the war started. He was nearly embracing it because oh, he, he was speeding there quickly. He yeah. was like, "Woo!" Yeah, here we go. It's from my issues. It's We're going into a war yeah, stage. Exactly. Happy days. Program. If you can get something, you know. Like Sorry, Paul. Go ahead. But the second thing, the China thing. The answer with China, or the question on China, is, I suppose it's kind of the thing that nobody dares speak about. But it's a huge. Um, elephant in the room as well, no doubt about it. Number one, for what I've just said there, not number one, but would say, firstly, take it from the point of view of the fact that China now appears to be hoovering up resources from around the world, which by definition will make less resources available for other countries in the world. So that's kind of a shift in geopolitical um, impacts, yeah. definitely. The second thing is, is that you could see the relationship developing over the course of the build-up to this um, Ukrainian um, invasion and war between Russia, between Moscow and Beijing, between Xi Jinping and between Vladimir Putin. There was, you know, there was a, um, they were getting more friendly, those two countries, which are traditionally not particularly friendly, or traditionally we regard themselves as superpowers that would rather have one up on the other. And the third thing then with the whole China thing is, everybody kind of acknowledges and sees this now as well, the absolute parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan. Yes. Everybody feels that China are just waiting for the opportunity to take back the island of Taiwan and bring it under their own control now as well. And that is basically it's the same thing as Russia and Ukraine. It's China and Taiwan. It creates that destabilizing effect and impact um, on the rest of the world. You know, it'll be and the exact same thing. How invested or how, how, how engaged will we be with the Taiwanese? Um, we, won't give a, we won't give a rat's arse about them as long as our iPads and our, our charters and everything else still keep arriving. Yeah, and that's yeah. a little bit like but, but this, but this is, you see, the China, well, China is a really interesting country because China never thinks in terms of what they do in six months' time or what they do in um, a year's time. China always thinks it's a strategic operator. It's Confucian theory. They're thinking about a hundred years down the line. Yeah, well, the, the thing the is, line. they won't. If they feel, oh, I would imagine today now in China, now they might look at the West and see a kind of a decadent society and might be particularly impressed with America and the whole thing, and they're starting to kind of flex their muscles on the world stage a lot more than what it is that they were, uh, or that they could, um, because of how it is they've developed and evolved over the last generation. But I would suspect that they would say at this point now, ooh, I'm not so sure. I think we'll kind of pull back a little bit on the whole Taiwanese issue for a while now. Yeah, because um, the world is. Well, one they of, could, one they of the could. commentators was saying about China that it's an awful lot more level-headed than people actually give them credit for. Yeah. 
that they actually might take a step back, like you're saying, especially with the Americans, because they have one eye on t uh, Taiwan yeah. down below. Yeah. They don't want to rock the boat too much. I wouldn't think so. Because, no, as I, I said, they don't, want, they don't want America as an aggressor on them if they decide to yeah. go, oh, Taiwan, yeah. 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 happy days. You've got to remember that they're no, they're no, and again, I think behind all no this, angels Putin, behind everything. Putin's economy is not as strong as what it is he might like to think it is. You know, he feels he has that 693 billion um, euros or dollars in his reserve so he can kind of see out these sanctions and see out this war. The Chinese economy might not be as strong as what it likes to present itself. You saw the turmoil that was there in the last number of months with property and that huge right. big property company that went bust which was actually going to have or potentially could have could have had and maybe still might have systemic um, impact on a Chinese economy. So I would think from the perspective of how it is the world works, that China will take a longer term view. And I wouldn't think, Jesus, I don't know, but I wouldn't think that they're not going to go rushing over to Taiwan anytime soon. I wouldn't think so. Well, there's two ways you could look at it. They could go in the morning because they'll sort of say, well, no, I'm serious, right? Because if you look at it, what did, what did uh, the United States do? Um, and you had a... Biden stated union during the week, which, uh, which I actually yeah. didn't watch any of it yet. I was yeah. to get around to watching that. But you think about it. What, did, what was the one thing that Biden did? He made sure there was no American troops anywhere mm. near yeah. the Ukraine. Right? So that they couldn't be seen that, there, that, that the excuse the wasn't there for it to mm. turn into Russia versus USA. Yeah. Can I ask a question in relation to the former president? Did Trump agree to pull out 6,000 or 3,000 American soldiers out of Poland when he was, when he was befriending yeah. Mr. Well, Putin? In his early days as president, did he not pull out quite a sizable amount yeah. because uh, Putin was kind of going, lads, you're too close for comfort here in, in Bolivia. Yeah. Was it a missile defense system as well? Or they, well, were, they going, were they going to build a missile defense system in Poland? It's very hard to know because there was the famous, um, what you call those things where the two heads of state meet, um, Conf no. conference or whatever. Yeah. There was a famous conference, we call it, in Helsinki with Putin and, and Trump, uh, maybe 2018, 2019, around about that time. And all these conferences are always very stage managed and you have all your, your group of people that are there around, they're transcribed, they're, they're, they're noted, everything. At one of those conferences, Putin and Trump decided to have a kind of a private tete-a-tete -tete amongst themselves. So who knows what was agreed um, during something like that. It's totally um, something that you wouldn't see at that level, you know, at that president, presidential yeah, level, that because, it wouldn't be recorded. Because you go back to how uh, we've spoken about the Tories and Russian well, so money. 2016, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you talk about Russian interference in the yeah. American and that was, general election. That, that has been explicitly, in the Mueller report, it has been explicitly mm. acknowledged now at this stage that yes, there was Russian interference in 2016 um, in the American presidential election. There were links between Trump and Russian um, spy agencies, you know, it was there, it's there, there was help from Russia in relation to throwing dirt, it was delivered through WikiLeaks, but it did come from Russia to deliver the dirt on the, um, on the, on, on, on the Clinton campaign to hack into the democratic um, the, the oh, databases. Yes. So there was significant, no more so than in Brexit, there was significant Russian interference in the workings of the electoral system in another um, country.
And I mean, would we be in agreement that that Trump uh, was a was a puppet for for Russia in the sense the amount of money that he owed to the Russians yeah. to build his Trump Tower <laughs> yeah, and so forth? Well, that literally he was he was well, the very, he, he was only in he was only in in 2016, and you had that famous I don't think it took any leg that famous the MI6 agent um, I can't remember his name now the agent from the UK who had that Moscow dossier. On Trump in relation to his business dealings yes. before he became yeah, yeah he um, was going president. to do build a Trump Moscow, a Trump and, Moscow and, and like there, there's allegations out there in relation to some you know things that happened that uh, you know he, there was a Miss World competition out there. He, he, the chairman of his of his, ele- his first election campaign, you might remember the name Paul Manafort, Roger Stone. Yeah. they were both convicted. They had been acting on behalf of or acting in Ukraine. Supporting that president you talked about there, Yankovich, who had to leave in a hurry in 2014 because he was a Russian stooge. These boys, Manafort, Stone, who were on Trump's campaign team in 2016, were advisors, very well-paid advisors over a long number of years to that Yankovich. So those links and, and connections were created there, you know, over a long period of time um, between Trump and um, Russian influence then again. And you saw it's been there, it's explicitly there um, in, in, in the Mueller report. What, what, what they did. So you look, it's it's like the old phrase we use. It's walking like a duck. It's quacking like a duck. It's talking like a duck. It's a duck. So he was he yeah. was was he interviewed last week, Luke? In in relation, he oh, was like, given his count and he said Putin's a great guy. This is yeah. before it all kicked <laughs> off, and now he's claiming that um, he supplied the Ukraine with their weapons that they're now defending themselves with. That he should be given credit. For that. You've you got to remember, his first impeachment was on the basis of his discussion with Zelensky. And that's your third question there, Thomas. Yes. Let me get to that there now. But I was on the basis of his discussion with Zelensky, where, there, where he was holding back um, weaponry, where he was holding back aid until Zelensky got him some dirt on the Biden family, who had been doing work and in Ukraine as well. And he basically refused to Yeah, so he, he went out of his way to make sure <laughs> that, that Zelensky wasn't going to be armed properly or wasn't going to be supported properly in his country, that is the Ukraine. So, but but it, just show, I mean, it just shows the credibility that Zelensky has. Well, that, that it brings you, so I suppose it brings you now, actually just to finish off on the yeah. last thing there, Trump also, he talked about that thing with Putin. He also mentioned on the first day of, I think this day last week, on the first day of the invasions, he was on some... Um, Fox News thing or something like that talking and somebody talked about troops having landed in the Crimea. He interpreted that as US troops had landed. He was going, yeah, go for it. <laughs> great, great idea, great idea. That just shows you his, his, his level of competence when it comes to kind of, you know, world affairs. You know, that's, no, look, it's an aside. But Zelensky, go on to Zelensky yeah. um, and, and, and the question you asked. I think Politically, I think it's a really interesting um, question as well. If you look at all the politicians, if you want to call them that now, whether it's Macron in France, whether it's Johnson, Cameron, any of them in the UK, there's a kind of a professional political class has evolved and developed now in, in Western liberal democracy. And I think it's a weakness. It's a phenomenal weakness. Uh, and it's even here in Ireland to a lesser extent as well. You've got somebody who goes into politics, goes to Oxford, we'll say, does their degree in politics, um, whatever it is, PPE, this politics, something, and economics, and then they go down, they work in Conservative Party headquarters or Labour Party headquarters, and they go into a safe seat, and they assume the role of minister for something, and they become um, prime minister. It happens in Ireland to a lesser extent as well. You go to college, and you study, and you go into the political system, and you start to work, and you stay within the political system. You've got it explicitly so in France, in that they have these universities or lecoles that actually train people for the public service. So you get, you, you get this political leader class that has no experience or minimal experience um, of the real world. 
you know, and how it is that the real world actually operates. They're in bubble territory from day one, from the day they're being trained. And it's not good. And Zelensky, and we could have laughed, we might have laughed at Zelensky. He wanted us to laugh because he was a comedian with a, with a very popular show. But the man had real world experience. He set up his own company to develop this TV show, which ironically, ironically, apparently was about a history teacher who is dead set against corruption and stands for president of his country and gets elected president by accident. So it's a kind of like irony of ironies, this is how it happens. So it's a great thing that actually he, he's, 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 a, he's a human, he's a natural person. He knows and understands human, you know. And he's not a conventional with, politician. He's not a conventional politician. The conventional politics has become a weakness of our Western democratic politics. Conventional in the sense that we're training our politicians. They're staying on the same path right throughout life from the very early age. And that is not good. We need people in politics who have broad experience, you know, and have done other things before they assume a political mantle. And I think Zelensky is, 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 is an example of that. And not just, you know, he not wouldn't just be the first uh, politician that became a president. Oh no. Ronald Reagan. Reagan, actor. Um, Donald Trump. I suppose you could say to a lesser extent, or to an extent, Trump is in, that, is in that frame as well. But then you see, you've got to recognize that you see, you've got these influences that work outside, like we just explained about Trump, that somebody is maybe pulling and yanking chains there to set it up. But I think the point is with Zelensky, he's obviously, he has led, he leads his people really, really well. And you see, it, it, your culture, it's your culture, again, your culture. Okay, they obviously have a history, Ukrainian people. Um, they, have a, they have a toughness. They went through the Second World War. They had some of the roughest and toughest battles in the Second World War on their ground. They have that. They have to have that. That's hardwired into their DNA. But they're being led from the front now by Zelensky, by his cabinet, by his, I even hear his opposition. You know, they're down in the bunkers and right. the undergrounds and they're saying, we're working for our country now as well. We support our president now at this time. Can you just transfer that over to America? You know, if well, you, if go, go bunker, they will deliberately go out of their way to undermine the president, the sure. alternative party, the opposition will go out of their way to do that. So you can see that that's a culture. That's culture again. That's the culture of the country. So supposing in the morning that the Russians invaded the UK or England, what do you think would happen there? They'd fall asunder because they had, the culture is wrong. The culture from the stop. The culture is party gate. The culture is taking money on a backhander from somebody else. Their culture is all wrong. Zelensky's reason for getting into politics was to change the culture. He was sick of this corruption. He was sick of the Yankovic and all that. He was sick of that corruption. Yeah, the, the really interesting character in all of this is Zelensky because of his background from a point of view of being a non-politician. And I mean, if you think about it, uh, compared to our friend over in the, uh, let's say across the water, Boris, I mean, who himself and the Tory party seem to be just rotten to the core in relation to lies and everything that goes with it. But Zelensky has led as a patriot and from a point of view of just being a man in charge and a man that you would follow. I mean, what would you think about that? I mean, he just seems to be driving his people on and that's a, that's a massive part yeah. of what the Ukrainian resistance is about. Well, it's a huge thing. It's, it's, it's been, I suppose, it's been the most fundamental issue for the last week, right away since the very start. And you, know, you, you, you remember the Munich conference the week before the invasion, that kind of annual security conference that takes place um, with all um, players from right around the world, different countries there. He um, flew into that. There was a lot of talk that he wouldn't, you know, it would be dangerous, you know, that he, that he should leave the country, shouldn't be in the country anymore. Um, he flew back straight away. He wanted to be back in his country. So that's, um, it's in direct contrast with, say, for instance, to the previous um, um, President Yankovic, who kind of 
the minute there was any bit of trouble with, with, with the orange revolution, I'm out, I'm out of here, I'm back yeah. into a safe haven. The easiest thing for Zelensky to do is to leave his country and to have a safe haven and he could be fated right around the, the world for the great work that he did. But no, he seems to be um, totally um, immersed in, 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 in his country and in his people. If you even, if you even look at, at, at how it is, like they're, actually they've done really well in how they present themselves to the world. If you look at him, look at the clothes he wears. You know, he wears a simple t-shirt and he kind of not over the top action man um, kind no, of soldier no. thing, but a simple olive uniform, yeah. you know, that type. So he's delivering a kind of a message, I'm prepared to fight here as well. His Minister for Defence dresses similarly, you often see them together. You can see the contrast, we'll say, with him and his cabinet down in, 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 in some underground bunker in Kiev, where they're very close together, and you contrast that with Vladimir Putin at the end of a table and his Minister for Defence at the other end That's of right. a table, you know, and his head of the army at the other end of the table. There's that kind of disconnect, it would appear totally, from him and his people. Whereas with Zelensky, there's this huge connect that's actually there. And that connect then manifests itself right throughout the whole Ukrainian population and the Ukrainian population around the world. I think we have 80,000 Ukrainian people have gone back to the Ukraine to help defend their country um, under the threat that's there now at the moment. So as a politician, and as you may be discovering there, Thomas, as a non-politician, I think Zelensky has done really, really well. And as any good bloody politician, he has said, look, there's a crisis on here, and he's using that as an opportunity. He's thinking, like, while he often, and we don't know what will ultimately happen with him. There have been, you know, assassination squads sent into the Ukraine, sent into Ukraine to um, the Chechens. You might have seen those. They're being sent. This is deliberately to try and provoke fear as well. The Chechens are sent in deliberately to to um, target him and to assassinate him. But even in the midst of all this, this week you saw just this week he kind of flexed his political muscles a little bit in saying, I want to kind of fast track my application for EU membership. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's, he's focused on a lot of different things. It's a sign of a very good um, intellect or a very good individual. He's focused on a few different things and getting a job done. So as politicians go, um, he has kind of worked exemplary over the last number of weeks. Um, and the interesting thing I think here is that he's not a professional politician. No, you, know, think, you look right around Europe and you look right around the world and you see this professional political class that has evolved and developed. You know, they go to college, um, they get their degree in politics and economics, they start to work for a political party, they're assigned a seat to win to represent in their national parliament, whether it's Westminster or Leinster House or whatever it is, or the House of Representatives, they go there, they become a cabinet minister, they become prime minister. Um, it's a kind of a well-worn, um, dull political path with a lot of um, non-life um, learning, if you know what I mean. Yes. You go into a bubble at a very early age and you stay in that bubble. And I don't think it makes you a good politician. Zelensky, and we might laugh at it, the fact that he was a, a, a television comedian, but I mean, like he was a television comedian who developed an idea and a very successful business idea and then kind of had life experience and then became a politician in his kind of early 40s or late 30s at that stage. So I think from a political point of view, um, he's giving a masterclass in how it is that politics should be um, delivered. Yeah, True. I mean, you're, you, you see the, the peace talks um, on the border, was it between Belarus, Belarus and Ukraine? And one of the things that uh, you saw with the different uh, teams that walked into the room, you had the Russians all suited up and all mm. their, you know, kind of imposing nature. Yeah. 
And then you had one of the lads in the middle of the, the Ukrainian crew with a baseball cap on. Baseball he was right in the middle of it yeah. all. Yeah. You know, and like you said, it's yeah. down, like, even the way Zelensky mm. dresses, yeah. it's very much a part of the people. Yeah. Not, yeah. not this, this hierarchy, sort of, even yeah. though he is their, 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 their president, you know? Yeah, yeah. Look, it's a highly charged um, situation and scenario. It's highly emotional. You're dealing with, you're, you're listening, you know, you've seen some of those transmissions that he's made to the European Parliament, or, um, you know, that they're on, they're, they're on a screen. He's, he, he's, he's, he's delivering his message in that way, not to face. But um, they are, they're, they're, they're highly, but of course they're highly charged. This is a man whose life is under threat, who explicitly, um, the Russians have threatened, are threatening his life. That's what they want to do. They want to take him out. They feel if they take him out, that, that whole Ukrainian um, resistance collapses. I know. I think that there's a good analogy. If you if you were to apply, you know, it talks about it's the culture again. It's the culture. It's political culture, and that's why you get that strength from the whole country because you can see it in your leadership. That's what leadership is about. You know, it's not about you know windy, empty rhetoric. We've seen loads of those type of leaders around the world. You know, and you know if you. If you, were to, if, if you were to feel that Russia invaded another country where the leadership mightn't be quite as, you know, kind of in tune with its people, you know, perhaps a leadership that had been involved in Partygate, for instance, not to name any country. Um, would that country, could that country um, defend itself? You know, why would you as a citizen of a country like that, where your leaders had been bringing wine in by the suitcase full into their office during a lockdown time, why would you stand up at the barricades and defend that country? You know, yeah. it's, it's a point worth thinking about, I think. No, it's, a, it's a great comparison. I know we're going to be talking more um, politics from, from a, a, a home and, and rural kind of nature now shortly. Um, but breaking news last night, Alan Kelly. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, we 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 we, 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 we get into that, but I suppose the, the more important breaking news is that Neighbours is finishing after thirty seven years on, on, on the TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, uh, with a crash. Right, exactly. Okay, before we finish on Ukraine, um, God knows what will happen the next time we have that political. But uh, can we be somewhat, or is there any optimism that we can hold out for our, the Chinese? Mr. Ping, is he going to step in and kind of go... No, this is going to be long term. I think, Thomas, this is going to go on for a long time. It's not going to be... Um, it, it, look, the optimistic, optimism... Look, the only thing... Look, we've, we've seen all this before, I suppose. But, you, you know, there definitely has been a sense that, you know, this far and no further. You're definitely now in a, in, in a scenario whereby the rest of the world is saying to Russia, no, no more, you know, no more influence. No more peddling your 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 way of thinking in our world. Like we're going to go through an awful time. I don't know how long it'll last, but we're and the, no, most especially the Ukrainians are going to go through an awful time. Um, it's going to be just kind of a chokehold type scenario. I think there's not going to be a retreat back to Moscow. They're going to be they're going to stick it out as long as they possibly can. I think the Russians there. But look, what can we do? Only just kind of. Yeah. Go through it. There's going to be uh, displacement of yeah. an awful lot of people yeah. across yeah. Europe. It's funny one one analyst that I thought it was <laughs> it was the strangest point of view to take, but it was a very practical point of view. He was saying, uh, listen, if we have an awful lot of Ukrainian people coming to Ireland, you know, we should embrace it. 
but equally so they're highly educated mm. and that we're looking for a workforce we're looking for you know what I mean in, in different economies we're, we're yeah. short on staff yeah. whatever oh, we have. that we should be basically saying well look you know this is an opportunity as well it might be short term medium term yeah. but it can work on you know let's not just look at it as 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 you have we can we can benefit them mm. as well as ourselves yeah. he's being very very practical yeah. well that's, it. You you to, that's the way you have to look at it yeah you have to look at it like yeah. that so, Right, well, I'll tell you what, uh, we're going to finish up this part of El Politico in the biggest boardroom in uh, Europe, apart from the one that uh, Putin has, we'll say, for his TV shows. We'll finish out with a song and join us for the next part of the show where we start talking about Irish politics.